0: Every Wednesday in Sounder Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Ah, uh, But this time, we have nine picks from a guest because joining me, Leon Cox, in Sounder Play 109 is Yonder the Cloudcatcher Chronicles and others, as we shall find out, composer Stefan Schützer. Schutz, sorry, not Schützer. No, no, actually Schütze or Schutz, is, either is fine. Okay. So, yeah, they're both good hello <laughs> hi hi Stefan uh, yes so you uh, you're obviously from the accent you're our first antipodean well from your antipodean from my point of view depends where you are in the world this is a worldwide podcast but uh, you're in Australia you're you're our furthest flung guest uh, our first Australian composer so uh, welcome represent that uh, beautiful amazing part of the world and uh, but obviously with a name uh, like Schutz or Schützer, uh, you have Germanic ancestry presumably
1: it's all a bit complex. With I think a lot of people, uh, technically, to be honest, I was born in Guildford, oh. so there you go. <laughs> so I've, I've I've actually got both passports. So I, I I have spent my entire life from the age of two months old in Australia. So okay. I am as much Australian as as anything else. But um, I have the the wonderful convenience of having two passports, which
0: is really really very convenient. That is convenient. Well, I would never have got that we were uh, for listeners who won't know we were talking about Guildford in the in the virtual green room before we started recording. I ha- I ha- would have had no idea that that was where you originally hailed from just up the road really from where I am now. Uh but yeah, lovely to have you on. Um this is uh, another interview that's been brokered by our friend Jordan and uh we have already heard some of your work there, the first of five tracks from your amazing canon. And that starts, we've started with a vocal track, which I always like. So this is Dusk Till Dawn from a very recent release, the one I mentioned there, Yonder, The Cloud Catcher Chronicles. So tell us a bit about that piece and uh, and the vocal work in particular.
1: Well, so um, in full disclosure, and I guess it's a, it's a bit of a, um, a confession, that's actually the first song I've ever written.
0: Oh, right. Okay.
1: Even though I've, I've been a musician and a composer for many, many years, I never I never got into that particular avenue of, of writing lyrics and writing songs. Um, when the the uh, Yonder project came around, I decided I wanted to um, and I decided I wanted to for various reasons um, because really what the song was about was was less about wanting to write a song and more about wanting to collaborate. Yeah. And Dust till Dawn was a, a collaboration in, in several different ways. Um, and one of the key ways was that the the lyrics, I had some core I guess phrases you would, you could say that I wanted to add. There were certain core messages that I wanted within the song. But then the overall art of of songwriting is something, as I've just admitted, is, is not something that I'm I'm particularly experienced with. Mm. So I actually uh, engaged and collaborated with uh, somebody who's very, very dear friend, and is also uh, somebody who's been in the industry for many, many years, yeah. and is principally a songwriter. And that is a gentleman called George Sanger. Yeah, he's an American gentleman, and many people will have heard of his names because he's been doing stuff for ever. Yeah, and George is a wonderful person, but also George has <clears throat> George has an incredible spirit, and when it comes to pulling the core out of the meaning of something he, he, he sat down you know uh, you know as we are now via skype and um we discussed it and was like what are the key things what are the important things to you what is the message what is the what are the aspects of the story that are really central and important to you and i and I, I just talked to him and gave him a whole bunch of information and he came back with some really really lovely lyrics and then we discussed them, and we adjusted a couple. And it was it was it was almost perfect. It was almost perfect. And there were a couple of literally just a couple of words that weren't exactly what I'd wanted. Um, and so I did what I do with practically everything that I, I ever write, um, because I'm uh, incredibly fortunate to be married to somebody who is a game writer, ah, right. and uh, and an editor, and generally a writer. And so I I sort of um, asked my wife Anna to have a look at it. And she just came up with a couple of suggestions that basically got those last couple of things that I wasn't quite happy with and 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 made them work. And so from that, we got the the lyrics that I was happy with, and then I wrote the music around that. And then I engaged somebody else who I'd, I'd wanted to uh, collaborate with, and that was a lovely young woman called Elizabeth Zaroff, mm-hmm. who is based in Los Angeles, and she sings with the Los Angeles Opera. She was previously in Seattle with the Seattle Opera. And I think you can hear that in the quality of her voice, which is just gobsmacking. And so it was one of those lovely things for me because one of the other, I guess, admissions I can say is that because of being in Australia and being quite isolated, most of the work I've done uh, throughout my entire history in the game industry has been pretty much just me. And so being able to collaborate with people like that was just lovely it was really really wonderful and and i i there's no way that this piece of music could have been what it was without all of that collaboration
0: yeah absolutely quite understand uh obviously we'll hear some of your uh, less collaborative work later on which is uh, some amazing stuff as well and uh, we've featured we've been lucky enough to feature a number of professional composers in recent times who all seem to have such an amazing uh, eclectic range of styles that you can uh, you can adapt yourselves to so uh, that's always fun George Sanger it's interesting you should mention we recently featured uh, a, a friend of his another uh, a young and aspiring composer with a few credits called Ryan Eston Paul who's uh, who's been in contact with George Sanger on our behalf and uh, we're hoping to have him on this very podcast very soon so uh, no promises listeners but uh, that'll square I'm, the circle nicely.
1: I'm talking to him tomorrow morning if you want me to drop that would be message. great
0: mention Kana rin's sound of play and uh and ryan ryan paul who he knows and uh hopefully that'll uh that'll yeah just uh just give him that little extra shove to come on and join us because we'd love to hear from such a legendary composer we featured some of his tracks before um i'm sure he doesn't mind and uh, <laughs> uh it'd be nice to hear him talking about
1: beyond. Beyond everything else uh, and his skill and his reputation and the many years he's been doing this, George is also probably one of the nicest people I think I've ever met. Like he is, awesome. he is so sincere and genuine and wonderful and supportive uh, and a whole lot. Uh, imagine a very, very long list of wonderful adjectives okay. <laughs> just to save time.
0: I look forward to speaking to him. Absolutely. Um, and you should tell us a bit about Yonder as well because this is a game which is uh, pretty new out, at the time of recording it's been out less than a month, Uh, by the time this show goes out it'll be a little uh, longer than that but uh, still a new game it's reviewed pretty well but I'd say it's reviewed even better by users on Steam this is available on PC for Windows and Playstation 4 Uh, it's an Australian developed game and uh, by Prideful Sloth and uh, influences uh, according to Cheryl Vance, the lead designer include uh, Animal Crossing and Zelda Skyrim and Harvest Moon and lots of nice pastoral, um, you know, kind of relaxing adventures and arable things. And uh, so uh, how much uh, sort of contact did you have with the game as you were composing for it?
1: Well, I did all of the audio. Yeah.
0: And this is something that um, uh,
1: is something that I actually really enjoyed doing. Um, But also I worked very closely with the team and the team. What what is amazing about Yonda is there was three core people in the team. And they built this open world game in uh, a bit over sort of uh, 14 to eight, uh, 18 months, mm. which it was just gobsmackingly amazing, the talent involved with those guys. Yeah. Um, but but not just that. It, was just the, it wasn't it was just, oh, can you throw in some sounds? It was we, we collaborated on a whole range of things to try and get a really alive world and to get the music. There's all sorts of interesting little dynamic things that the music do and joel styles who's the the main uh, programmer was he was incredible he was it was one of the most enjoyable projects i've ever worked on and the funny thing is is that i nearly turned it down oh,
2: right.
1: because i was ex- i was extremely busy when um they approached us uh, and uh, asked if, if i was interested and they sent through the, the demo and i looked and went oh this is really really pretty and then they said one of the key features of the whole game was there's no combat in the game. There's no violence in the game. I'm like, ooh, it's going to be really hard to turn down, but I'm so busy and I'm trying to – I am I was trying to, to, to get used to saying that word no because, <laughs> so that I wasn't doing too much. Yeah. And, I, and I sort of thought, oh, all right, well, look, this looks like really, really wonderful and we're going to meet them. And and I was kind of trying to – I was trying to find a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. I, I was trying to find not necessarily an excuse to not do it, but just something that could, could – Make it not the perfect project so that I'd feel, you know, some yeah. sort of uh, safety net in in stepping back. And so I had a, a, a concept in my mind of the, the type of music that I wanted to write for this world, the type of music, frankly, the type of music or style of music that I've always wanted to to try and write. And so I had that sort of firm idea in my mind and I sort of went off to the meeting and it's like, right, you know, this is my, <laughs> this is the thing that I can use to sort of like, you know, maybe back out. Yeah. And so we sat down and had a conversation about a few things. And then I said, well, okay. I've got a, a style of music in my mind, but, but what what is the, what do you guys want? What What is your vision for the music? And they said, oh, we want the music to be very light and joyous and innocent, very much, you know, Miyazaki Studio Ghibli type music. And mm-hmm. my response was, bugger, I have to do this project because it was just mm-hmm. – that was exactly like like uh, I, I have I, – I spent three years living in Japan and out of all the sort of anime stuff, et cetera, uh, Miyazaki's Ghibli – is so wondrous yeah. um, uh, and joyful and innocent and amazing that, that being asked to try and bring life to a project that was trying to embody that and, and have style of music that was appropriate for that
0: was something that was just – I
1: I couldn't have turned it down, and I'm very glad that I didn't turn it
0: down yeah absolutely uh it's a it's a gorgeous looking game and and uh yeah hopefully we can help give it a bit more of a, a publicity because I, I don't think i've heard enough about it really based on how uh sort of ambitious uh, and how good it looks and how um and obviously how lovely it sounds as well
1: if, if i can make one really quick comment about that is one of the things that was quite interesting and, and you said this yourself a lot of the, the larger review sites have been fairly kind of like oh it's cute but, yeah. and yet the fans have been really, really, really massively, pop, uh, you know, positive about the whole yeah. thing. But one review in particular was really quite interesting. And the, 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 guy basically said, when I started this, I pretty much decided I wasn't going to like it. <laughs> and, and, you know, the first couple of minutes I looked and went, yeah, this confirms everything I don't like, but, but then he decided for some reason to keep going mm. and then he found he couldn't stop. And then mm. he actually says in the review, he apologized and said, I'm wrong. Hmm. I'm wrong about this game. And and he, he even said, I think that many of the other larger reviews might have done exactly what I've done in that they've scratched the surface and they've made a call on it based on this surface scratch yeah. and they've not looked any deeper. And as soon as he looked deeper, he found that there was so much more in it. And he was really, really surprised. And I, I was, I, I was actually very, very impressed to see a reviewer actually put his hand up and say, look, I got this wrong. Yeah. And, and on on real investigation, he was really quite surprised at how engaging he found it, how lovely he found it, and, and actually he found it a lot deeper than that initial scratch yeah. would have would have indicated. So, uh, yeah, that's been quite interesting to, to watch that sort of backwards and forwards between the people who are playing it and the people who are reviewing it, and there seems to be a bit of a difference going on there
0: yeah always interesting as uh, somebody i'm not speaking from the the point of view of the reviewers union here but as somebody who's done it professionally i know that uh often oftentimes the problem is you, you're getting sent umpteen codes of games yes. to download a week and it's very hard to, to, to do more than scratch the surface which is why uh absolutely we uh we advocate looking at um you know uh, user reviews on steam from people who've played 30 50 hours uh mm. and it's also why our other podcast Kane and rinse where we where we do reviews is where we don't review anything that we haven't finished and that is overly new because uh often games take a long time to settle and to to really to understand and also of course i mean and i'm not saying anything about yonder in this because i don't know what they've done in terms of updates but these days it's obviously very common for games to be released as a kind of in in a fairly beta state and actually they really come to life over the next couple of years obviously we're seeing this with no man's sky um in particular games coming out perhaps earlier than they ought to have done and and there's every chance to uh to polish them and and actually increase their scope and and based on player feedback which is Obviously, mm. you know the best arbiter from the developer's point of view is to actually make a game that people find more enjoyable. So,
1: oh, absolutely, and and this is the thing. As much as I've worked in game development for nearly twenty years, I've yeah. been a gamer yes. for closer to forty years, and I can be, uh, in fact, in some ways, working in game development makes me even more scathing sometimes. And and in all honesty, because yeah. you because you mentioned it, um, I bought No Man's Sky day one, right, and I was furious yeah (laughs) i was absolutely (laughs) furious and i and i've heard that they've done all sorts of things and in my mind as a gamer Mm. i'm like no sorry too little too late right that that you don't get you don't get to do that as a developer i kind of understand that they were possibly under some pressures yeah but also as a developer it's like yeah no no that you 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 promised a bit too much and and on on day one you didn't deliver yeah. enough of what promised and, and that was something that that you know um i can understand that there are a lot of people who are a bit l- less than happy shall we say absolutely
0: yeah so in your 40 years as a gamer sounds like uh, yeah similar amount of time to myself um you've played a lot of stuff no doubt and uh You've also brought some selections from some of your favorite game soundtracks from over the years. And the first one we're going to listen to is, uh, I think one we featured before, but it's, uh, it's never a disappointment to hear from Gary Scheiman from his work on the Bioshock games. And this is from the, the second game, which I know some people prefer. Some people still stand by the original, but, uh, but no one can deny, I don't think the beauty of pair bond. So what is it about this piece that, uh, that made you pick it among just four to bring to us?
1: First of all, trying to pick four pieces. Yeah. Oh boy, is that? I'm hard. sorry about that. That, yeah. <laughs> that is so hard. But but having said that, I mean, frankly, by, by the sounds of things, you and I could probably sit here for the next week and talk about this sort of stuff if, if it's what we love. So yeah. so I understand that we we have to limit it. Um. I am one of those who thinks that Bioshock 2 is better than Bioshock 1. And for mm. me, it had to do with the story and specific elements of the story. And uh, we don't have children. Um, okay. We have cats. But we don't yes. have children. Same here. And I've, <laughs> I, I've never really had a paternal instinct. Mm. Bioshock 2 changed that. Bioshock mm. 2 had such an impact on me that you know you're playing the normal game and you're wandering around etc cetera, etc cetera, and i would hear the little sister's scream and and i not not my character but i would go into a red rage and i would literally just drop everything storm through the levels find whoever was threatening her and i, I would just annihilate them because it, it more than almost anything before in my entire life triggered that wow and i think i think the opening certainly uh that opening scene certainly helped that but i think also that opening piece of music, and in fact, that first chord, mm-hmm. that first chord is the epitome of like literally. It's like it's reached into your, directly into your heart and grabbed the, the the chord that attaches you to anybody that you you have love for, mm. and and you can just and that that first note is that 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 beautiful just whisper level um, strings is is sublime in in the sound but it, it it speaks so much it speaks about that that bond and and the the sort of bizarre sort of love i guess you could say between this essentially giant monster and somewhat bizarre looking sort of child but it's just, it is such a stunningly beautiful piece of music. And I would go as far to say there, there are many, many pieces of music within the game industry uh, over the years that I have loved for various different reasons. But I think in some ways for me, this was the first piece of music that I really felt was beautiful mm. at, at a really, really deep level. Uh, and I mean, the whole, the whole uh, soundtrack is, is, is stunning. But that first piece, it, it, it speaks to me so deeply. Um, and, and, and I was very, very fortunate. Um, and I met, I've met him a couple of times, but I was very, very fortunate, um, when I was out with, um, a, a, another colleague. To, to bump into a table of people who are having lunch. And one of them yeah. sort of said, oh, blah, 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 blah. You haven't met these people. Oh, and that's Gary Scheiman. Uh-huh. And I and I literally, I just sort of said, um, I'm sorry if this is inappropriate, but Pear Bond is one of the most sublime pieces I've ever, ever heard. Thank <laughs> you so much. And Great. and he really, really appreciated that. He, you know, um, he, he. he uh, I mean, like any of us, we, we love what we do, but it's also really, really lovely to hear when what something that we've done affects people in a good way. And so I've always made sure that if there's a piece of music or a piece of art or whatever, and I'm ever fortunate enough to meet the person that is responsible for that, I will, I will always try and convey to them, you mm. know, the significance that their work has had on me. Because I think that's uh, something that it doesn't matter, even if they're a Gary Shryman and they've been doing this forever and they've, they've got, you know, millions of fans, you know, I still think it's it's, it's worth saying sincerely why you appreciate their work.
0: That was, of course, pear Bond from Gary Scheiman, Bioshock 2 soundtrack. We covered Bioshock 2 on the Kane Rinse podcast quite a long time ago now in issue 73. That was our second year. We're now in our sixth year. Uh, there you go. Uh, and so uh, without trying to ask you, uh, this is our guest, Stefan Schutz, a composer, um, without asking you, how do you do your magic, reveal your secrets? Like, what is it about? Because I completely agree with you about that opening chord uh now obviously a chord is is something you know that particular chord i uh, uh, my my music theory is not strong enough to just be able to tell you what it is but i'm sure it's a chord that's used elsewhere in other things other times but what is it how do, how does he make it so that that chord does exactly what you said it does before the track is it is it the production is it the attack and the sustain is it the 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 sound of the instruments used
1: i think i think the, the latter i think uh, and I won't. I won't uh, even dream of trying to to speak for how Gary Shoman does things. But I think, yeah. in general, every single instrument has a voice in the same way that we have a voice, and in the same way that I can I can whisper to you, I can talk normally to you, I can scream at you. But 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 think about if I say I scream at you without putting any more information there, what, what does that mean? Am I screaming at you to warn you of danger? Am I screaming at you because I'm, I'm angry with you? Am I screaming at you in joy because we both just won the lottery or our football teams just kicked a goal? And so this is the thing. There is, you've, you've got every single instrument that has a very, very different, uh, I like to call them tones and textures. It's almost like the difference between a, a watercolour, a uh, style of painting and a, and a color pencil where you've got the texture on the paper or, or, uh, you know, a, a CG digital type of artwork where they've all got different tones and, and color palettes and text and stuff. And you can do the same sort of thing with music. Now, one of the things with that chord is the choice of instrument being strings, being high strings and being played in such a way where they're barely, the, the, the strings are barely making a voice and so what you get out of this is you get that that beautiful sort of feeling and it is a, a literally a beautiful is the is the perfect word here and in fact i was talking uh, to a, a friend of mine the other day who um He's a wonderful gentleman who um, has been helping with me with orchestration, and you know he's worked on some little projects like you know he helped out with the orchestration for you know these tiny little projects like all of the Lord of the Rings and Hobbits movies, for instance, <laughs> right. you know. So, but but we were talking about instruments, and 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 one of the things I love about what I do is that it's like somebody's handed me a box of coloured pencils, and I'm just sort of reaching in there and pulling them out. But unlike reality, every now and again I pull out a pencil and it's like. Oh my God, this is, this is a color I didn't even know existed. Mm. This is, this is incredible. And, and so and, and quickly, one example of that was, um, for yonder, the, the orchestration, so that the way which you treat the instruments, how many instruments you use and how you write for them, the orchestration is actually very light. Mm. Um, it's li- it, the lightness, uh, tends, uh, to the sense of, of wonder and innocence, and so whenever I used any brass instruments, I'm actually trained as a horn player myself, so I do use right. horn quite a bit, but I started on trumpet. But when I used any of the brass instruments, I tend to use just a single brass instrument, not the giant you know, artillery battery of trumpets or trombones. Yeah. And in fact, in some pieces, what I realized is that a single trumpet by itself, especially as it goes into its upper register, actually sounds fragile and vulnerable. And so you've got this single brass instrument. We're used to brass, you know, Hans Zimmer brass blowing you off your chair. But if you use a single trumpet in the right register, in the right part of its range, and in this case, I mean sort of slightly up higher, mm. not so high that it's squeaking, but slightly up higher, it, it, it almost has the same quality as a, as a young boy singing in a choir mm. where, you know, there's that little – that fragileness of you know is their voice going to break type sort of stuff, and it it, it can make you feel isolated and and uh, you know not scared but at least kind of you know it has a sweetness to it, mm. and so the 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 trick that and, and and Gary Scheinman is is an expert at it. His his orchestration is stunning. His use yeah. of instruments and sounds and colors is amazing. Um, but that but that's it's part of our craft. And it's, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a double edged sword. It's the challenge that we have to overcome. And at times it can be very, very difficult, but it's also an absolute joy. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to sit there and add a couple of instruments and and think, oh, wow, that's that, oh, I love that. That's going exactly where I want to. Oh, what if I bring in this other instrument? And you're just like, oh, that's amazing. You know, And, and, and quite often you get results you weren't even expecting. And and one of the things that I've said to, to other people, and, and, and interestingly, I've had this response from quite a few other composers and musicians, there'll be quite often when I'll write a piece of music and I'll go back and listen to it later on. And I'll be like, I don't remember <laughs> writing that. Where hmm. did that come from? What what? And, and I've, I've, I've sort of, I've, uh, you know, getting philosophical about it hmm. and there are various different approaches, but sometimes it feels like the music that I'm writing is, is or, was always there And Mm. what I've done is I've kind of, I've facilitated something. I facilitated the right things in the right way at the right time to kind of allow it to manifest. Now, now I want to clarify, I am not at all religious. So I'm not talking about whether there's a deity doing that and, or whether it's some sort of alien thing from another dimension or whatever. I I honestly don't know what it is and I can't put it into words, Mm. but at times it sort of feels like that the music is writing itself and I just happen to be the person that's helping that happen. A conduit. and it's. Yes, yeah. And and I know that. Whether that might sound weird or not, it's there are so many people I know who who sort of you say that to them and they nod and go, Yep. Yeah. Yep, I understand that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm not a, a creative uh, person in that sense at all, but uh, but I know a lot of musicians, and and a lot of them say that yeah, they get similar feelings. And as a and as a lover of music, I often feel like things I'm hearing that other people have composed are tapping into something incredibly um, distant and ancient and primal that's within you know sort of hard coded into my whatever it is whether it's you know whether we are just cells and impulses and whatever uh it's i mean it's fascinating yeah regardless of of what what you might believe uh, whether you're a, a spiritual person or or more on the scientific end um it's It's fascinating to consider how that might be and just why it is that this thing, which is so occasionally, I don't know if you've ever you you must have met one or two. You meet these people who just don't get music like it means nothing to them. It doesn't speak to them. It doesn't affect them. It doesn't move them. They're rare, but it does happen. And. I assume that that's because they're they're missing those bits or they're not in touch with those bits and you know they're perfectly happy they're fine without it but I can't imagine like that would be devastating to suddenly not feel music anymore.
1: Mm, no absolutely and and this is the thing music has been central to so much of my identity for so long. I mean I was quite lucky at the mo- at the time I didn't realize it but I mean when I was growing up My mother, you know, played classical music a lot. She took me to classical concerts. She took me to ballet and opera, which I've I'd actually ha- I actually don't like either very much, but it, it exposed me to uh, instruments and things and, and, and pretty much everybody in my family. Um, my, my brother, who actually now lives in London, was a composer for many years and he did film scores and stuff like that. And so there was definitely influences around. And of course, you know, I saw Star Wars when I was 10 and the music from that was amazing. And there are, there are significant pieces of music in my life that,
0: that are the reason why I am where I am today,
1: because yeah. those pieces of music have have, have impacted me. In in such a way.
0: Yeah. So bringing us into this next piece, also from Yonder uh this is uh called winter and uh it absolutely for me instantly evokes uh the feeling of uh being in uh, that sort of you know icy crystalline landscape perhaps uh you know wrapped up in furs and battling the weather and, and all that good stuff that i absolutely it's something i i've always adored in video games it's actually it's a lot more fun to be uh indoors playing a video game in which you're out in the cold than it is to actually be out in the cold a lot of the time <laughs> uh and and it's it's that sort of delicious, um, sort of safe, safe, warm feeling. But when you're composing a piece like this, now obviously we are, as listeners, as players, as people who have watched films and cartoons and whatever else our whole lives, we are used to certain types of instrumentation evoking scenes like this. So winter we will associate, I don't know, chimes and plucked strings. You'd know better than I, but certain, certain sounds. Now is that because... When when these pieces were first composed, when some time ago to accompany moving images or whatever, uh, was it just what tickled those composers as implying that sort of landscape? And it is now the 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 likes of uh, modern composers are simply tapping into what has gone before, or is it that these sounds innately conjure up these? Uh, these certain images and feelings to us in your opinion
1: (laughs) i i think it's actually a combination of both i think what you'll find is we we are absolutely uh, uh, in western societies and cultures at least we are absolutely trained in various different things um pretty much um you can pretty much thank uh gustav Holst. For writing every single piece of science fiction music ever written kind of i mean the planet the planet suite kind of was and and generally what it is is you'll find that somebody's written a piece of music that is gobsmackingly good and significant and it's set the scene for kind of from that point onwards not always and not absolutely Mm. but it definitely Mm. influences so there is certainly that element however i would say your other your other point is also very very valid the types of instruments you mentioned for winter, things like bells and, and um chimes and all that sort of stuff. The reason why is because those things are high pitched, they are clear and sharp, and so it brings about ideas of crystals and ice cracking and and um, you know in winter it, there's everything is is bright and sharp and you know the wind you know think of think of wind blowing through fir trees and dislodging the snow and and everything there is high frequency everything i've just described there is lots of high frequencies there Mm. and so that really kind of you know we we get that feeling and yet where are we more likely to go in summer in summer we're more likely go to the beach and as we approach the beach we're hearing the roar of the waves which is a longer lower sound and it sort mm. of permeates everything. And so, you know, I, I, I think that it's 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 a bit of everything in the same way that if I play something for you that's a, a sweet chirpy little uh, flute tune, mm. it's possibly going to make you think of spring because it's yeah. going to sound a little bit like a, a, a bird, you know, yeah. playing in one of the commons in London, for instance. Yeah. And so a lot of these things come from our associations with nature. A lot of these things come from how we respond to certain other sounds. Um, and, but then I, as I said before, I think there is also an element of training in there. Mm. So now winter is an interesting one. The, the, this is actually one of the last pieces I wrote for, for Yonder. This is very getting close towards the end. And I think part of me was possibly starting to, to, to the, the, the well of inspiration was running a little bit low. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I listened to a piece of music from a film that I really really liked. And and, and I often don't do that. And this and 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 what's more this was a film that was completely counter in a lot of ways to the style that I was supposed to be doing. Right. And then uh, and then I went, "Oh, I really love that element of it." And it's funny. I, I I wrote Winter. And then I went, "Oh, damn, I can't use that. It's it's much too derivative. It sounds much much too much like this other piece." I then went back and listened to this other piece and went, Oh, actually, no, it doesn't, not it, not even remotely. Mm-hmm. So there was something about this other piece that spoke to me. And it wasn't the it wasn't the um it wasn't the chords that was used, it wasn't the the instrumentation. I mean, this other piece did have piano in it, and that was about the only thing. Mm-hmm. It had that sort of sense of movement. But it was funny that that like initially I felt like I was ripping off that other piece, and then I was, when I listened back, I went, No, I haven't. Mm-hmm. But what what was interesting is, is that Winter is also significant for me in, and, and I was actually telling George Sanger this the other day, it's very, very rare, as I was saying to you, there's, there's quite a few pieces of music, and the, and the four that I've selected here are pieces of music written by other people that fall into that category of... Oh, I really wish I'd written that, but yeah. I'm really glad that I didn't because I would never enjoy it. You know, you, you never enjoy yes. it as much as, as when you hear somebody else's. And in fact, the next piece we're going to play from somebody else, and I won't spoil it, but the next piece we're going to play from somebody else, mm. I, I want to talk about that for, for a couple of reasons. But mm. So generally, you know, the, the, you can be you can quite often be proud of your own music. You know, you go, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that. That works. It works well for the project. And, you know, a lot of us have got imposter syndrome where we're like, yeah, but it's not as good as this person or that person. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe other people aren't going to like it, et cetera. And and that's a fear. There's always that egotistical fear of, oh, but what if nobody else likes my music? Whereas there are a couple of, there's quite often bits. So there are bits in yonder, sort of like a horn line here or a string line there where I go, "Oh, oh, I'm really happy with that two bars or that little phrase or whatever winter and why i i i wanted to share winter with you for this podcast is that winter is one of those very very rare pieces that i'm really really happy with good it it Really speaks to me in a lot of ways. and and so, in that regard, it, funnily enough, it matters less if other people like it. I mean, obviously you mm. you want people to like your music. but this one in some ways is, is it's almost like a piece that ended up being like, I've almost written this for myself, and i'm mm. and I'm really happy with it. And that's a really lovely feeling because I know a lot of artists and a lot of creative people really struggle with they've got to do something for a client or for a project or whatever. And, and we're quite often, we, we quite often feel less than entirely happy with, with the, the work that we do for various reasons. And so, I, yeah, I wanted to share Winter because I really, really like this piece. And so I'm hoping that it's something that other people can listen to and, and get some enjoyment out of as well.
0: So that's Winter by our guest Stefan Schutz from Yonder the Cloud Catcher Chronicles. Out now, as I say, on uh, Windows PC and PS4 if you want to check it out and the music that goes with it. Now, we've already had this one teased. It's a track we've featured before, but again, we will never, ever get tired of uh, listening to this. It's an award-winning piece, and it's always going to be fascinating to hear uh, somebody who is uh, musically adept and talented uh, tell us why they also think it's an amazing piece. So, Baba Yetu, Stefan, tell us why you picked this one.
1: This is the musical embodiment of joy. There, there is no better way to describe this piece of music. This this piece of music is literally like somebody has just bottled joy and they can just hand it to you through your headphones or your speakers. Mm-hmm. It is such a glorious piece of music. And it's funny, when when I, I sent you the link for you to, to when we were, we were discussing this, mm-hmm. and of course, the, the link I sent you is for the the opening of Civilization V. And uh, uh, because i've actually got the album this is from so uh, so christopher tin did a, an entire album of pieces of music like this and it is uh, the, uh it's called calling all dawns dawns mm. d-a-w-n uh, mm. calling all dawns and it is just amazing this album but it got used in civilization five and you've got this piece uh, of music four. That, sorry uh, four my apologies yeah. it was That's wow all right. it's old
0: isn't it yes yeah, getting old
1: yeah <laughs> um but but it's so out of place because the opening of Civilization 4 is like armies and cannons mm. and Julius Caesar marching off to a war, and you've got this yeah. piece of music that is unbridled happiness and joy, and they've they've basically used it to depict some of the worst aspects of humanity for the last six thousand years, and it's just like, and this is why in some ways I, I I prefer to think of it as the title, or it's the the first track on Christopher Tin's album. And it is, it is just glorious. It is, there, there is, I, I can't speak highly enough of this piece. This is, this is one of those pieces that makes me so happy that I do what I do. This is one of those pieces where you listen to that piece and it's actually only the benefit of having the rest of the album. To, to listen to afterwards because otherwise you would listen to that piece and think what can I follow that up with what can I listen to after that piece of music because it is just so so amazing it is just so amazing so um I, I'll i probably be quiet now because otherwise I'm just going to gush about this piece for the next 20 minutes because it is just a stunning piece of music
2: music <laughs> Say so you too
0: So Baba Yatu, uh, which I believe we previously established the lyrics of the Lord's Prayer in Swahili. Correct. Uh, that's Christopher Tin featuring Sweto Gospel Choir. As established earlier, uh, you don't have to be a religious person to get a, get a lot of happiness from that. Uh, yeah. 2005 piece. Yeah, and and it, I I comp- I had exactly the same feeling about the juxtaposition uh, of images to music. Now, I I like the Civ games very much and I think they're a brilliant achievement and and I love the fact that Firaxis c- continue to sort of um, you know, uh iterate on on this incredible concept that's been around now since the the original board game in the early 80s, I think it was. Um, but the fact is that Try as one might, almost every game of Civ, rather than ending up reaching for the stars and uh, flying to Alpha Centauri and conquering space, uh, it normally ends up in... war games you know into mm-hmm. international <laughs> global global nuclear war um which is kind of a touchy subject uh, at the time of recording hopefully uh you'll hear this and uh and the planet will still be here in a couple of weeks when the show's due out as uh as the 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 micro penis posturing uh goes uh, <laughs> goes on <laughs> uh yes. speak. um but yes uh Civ, Civ four, Civ five, Civ six, all all still worth playing. Possibly even Civ three, and and rather like the Mario Kart games, obviously a completely different genre. Uh, every every Civ player has their absolute staunch favourite version of Civ, and they will not hear a word said against it. And the other versions are all wrong <laughs> so there's definitely some people out there who have uh who are still stuck on civ 4 and um yeah they have they've they've given away bundles of of civ games in in various uh in various ways so i've got like s- stacks of civilization to play on my on my hard drive and someday maybe we'll try to cover them for the Kane podcast but as you can imagine listeners it's a bit of a tall order to to play to that level uh of Civ that we could satisfy the hardcore fans of of this incredible game that takes so long
1: to play it never ends it never I mean I I I played uh, I mean showing my age here I played an awful lot of Civ 2 I did play a bit of Civ 1 but I played an awful lot of Civ 2 and you'd be just amazing well you'd just be like I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna you know finish this this technological advance and I'll go to bed and then it's like why is the sun coming up yeah, uh, like like literally, like totally. the, the entire nights. This was back when I was a student. and I could do that. Entire nights would just evaporate, and you'd like. But hang on, I've only had two turns. <laughs> it was like it was yeah. wonderful. Um, but but it was like wow. You really needed to have an alarm clock uh, when you were playing that game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now another piece uh, from your canon, your over. Uh, it goes back to a Jurassic Park game so here you're kind of um, feeding into or off of uh, perhaps the music of John Williams um, obviously more recently that's uh, that's sort of changed as well with, with the more recent uh, movies although they've obviously gone back to that incredible uh, theme but actually listening to this piece in isolation from uh, Operation Genesis uh, it doesn't actually uh, speak to me so much of the, uh, the John Williams score so much as it's very much its own thing. I think this would actually work. that I, I I was listening to this and I was actually thinking about something like a rather more um, sort of heartfelt, independent game about you know characters and humans and things rather than sleeping dinosaurs. Uh, I think it's a lovely piece. But can you remember? Obviously, it's fourteen years ago uh, that this came out. So can you remember what your what your inspiration was for Sleeping Dinosaurs?
1: Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, this this entire project is very significant to me for a number of reasons. It was the second only ever project in in the game industry for me. Right. So I'd I'd only the, the my first game ever was the Starship Troopers game. Yeah. Um. And then we got told we're working on Jurassic Park, and I'm like, Ooh, okay. So that's going to be interesting because, as I said to you, when I was ten years old, I went and saw Star Wars, and and my brother bought me the 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 two record you know, um, Star Wars soundtrack back then, which I still own, you yes. know, this is sort of opened up it's got all the images inside and everything like that. And so John Williams was a massive influence on me. And mm. so we then got told, all right, you're doing Jurassic Park. And I'm like, right. Okay. There's that's a bit of a tall order. Yeah. Um, because obviously it's a, it's a big responsibility. It's a very big responsibility to be writing music mm. that is, worthy of that sort of a franchise and so i i started plugging away at writing some music and and back then i had some some orchestral sample libraries and back then they were very primitive they were like cds so the yeah. entire strings all the strings were on one cd and all the brass on the another cd and they were very very rudimentary and and frankly they sounded pretty awful mm. but i i started writing this music and then um our publishers which was universal interactive mm-hmm. um they were keeping a very close tie on everything because, of course, it was a very important franchise.
0: Valuable and so, property.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And so they did, which, which was quite unusual. I got a direct email from the publishers. And normally, they didn't deal with with minions, as it were. They, they no, dealt right. with the like, managers. I got yeah. a direct email from them saying, we want to hear some of the music. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yikes. <laughs> so I sent off a couple of the pieces that I was writing. And they wrote back to me and said, these are really very good. We're, we're cool. quite happy with these. But- the samples are pretty average and i was mm. like well okay i can look around and see if i can get something better i mean this is you know backwards and forwards via email i'm saying you know I, I can look around and find something better and they wrote back saying oh no no you misunderstand we want to use a real orchestra ah at which point my my heart leapt into my throat my brain exploded etc cetera, etc cetera, because this is this is this is kind of like, you know, top of the bucket list for any composer. Yeah, sure. And so I went, oh, okay, um, right. And they said, go out and get some quotes. So I got some quotes in Australia. And back then the Aussie dollar was very low compared to the US dollar. <laughs> and so they said, yep, we're happy with this quote. Um, go and um, engage the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra <laughs> to record. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, mm. oh my God. I, I've I've never had a I and this is the thing i had never had a composing class in my entire life i'd never had an orchestration class in my entire life i'd never no, had right. a scoring class in my entire life all of the stuff that i had done was practical horn playing or ensemble stuff or like i'd, I'd obviously taught myself how to do some of these things but mm. i was then basically told go out and record uh, write and record an hour's worth of music with the orchestra so it was simultaneously the greatest moment in my life and i was yeah. utterly terrified yeah um so dial forward a couple of weeks or months to to when we had the recording sessions and and I rock up and the, the orchestra's like, great, cool. And uh, you're in charge for the day. You're the producer for the day. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so this whole thing was like some sort of weird blur. But going getting onto the, the music, my brief was obviously write music that's Jurassic Park, but you can't be too derivative sure. um, in, in certain cases. But then they said, oh, but we, we want to use this as the main theme. And they got Don Davies, because this was the time that Jurassic Park 3 was being done, and Don Davies had done right. the, uh, the music for Jurassic Park 3. And they said, we want to record this piece of Don Davies' music, and they got me a score. So I've actually got uh, like a, a, a printout, of, of, uh, a photocopy of the handwritten score from Don Davies, one of his pieces. Mm-hmm. and um, But that opened the gates because as soon as we'd paid for that, we had the rights for the thematic material. And, of course, Don Davies had used John Williams' stuff. And so in some cases Mm. I was able to use the the actual theme, but I always used it really subtly. Like I tried to sort of – it would come in here and there, but it would go away. And so Sleeping Dinosaurs is one of those ones where I really wanted to invoke – and you're right, characters. But this game was a sim game about building the park. Yeah. And the characters were the dinosaurs. Mm, so literally, mm. you'd build an enclosure, et cetera, and then you'd sit down and you could click on the little pachycephalosaurus, which is a little tiny two-legged thing, and it would run around and you could watch it and it would run around, it would he- headbutt some of the other dinosaurs in mm. you know, a mating ritual and it would go over to the river and have a drink and then it would sit down and scratch its butt and do whatever else. And so I realized that the dinosaurs were the characters. And so- I wrote a whole bunch of themes. And sure, we had the big T-Rex theme and we had the, the you know, the raptors theme and all the big ones. But I got to write, like I wrote one called The Brachiosaurus Song and I wrote a couple mm. of other ones. And this one was basically to show that, sure, in this park, there'd be times when the, the raptors would try and break out and eat people. But there was also times when it was literally just really, really lovely to watch the dinosaurs and, and watch them interact, watch them behave. Um, and uh, almost a little bit like a David Attenborough uh, documentary yeah. because it's a sim game like uh, like we're talking about with civilization it's not an action game where you're shooting every five minutes quite often you'd be spending hours just sitting and watching these animals and it was fascinating and enjoyable and so this piece was there to evoke this sense of well not all the dinosaurs are killers there are herbivores there and there are families of dinosaurs and so this piece was trying to sort of elicit a little bit more sort of like this is not all about high action and 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 threats this is about there are some really, really lovely creatures there and and to try and sort of bring some of that character out in the music.
0: So that was Sleeping Dinosaurs by our guest Stefan Schutz from Jurassic Park Operation Genesis. Uh, And that, uh, you may remember, came out for Xbox and PlayStation 2. And PC back in two thousand and three. It's funny you should mention David Attenborough there because as you were talking about composing for Jurassic Park, I was thinking about that little bit in the first movie where Richard Attenborough is doing, is talking, is showing the the, the presentation to to the gang, and he's sort of saying, uh, "And of course, this is this this is just placeholder music. When it comes to the actual thing, we'll have like bomb, 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 bomb. The <laughs> Brontosaurus coming towards, us. <laughs> no expense spared, uh, sort of thing." Um, but that, yeah, that must have been a lot of fun. So, how old were you in two thousand and two? Or whatever when you were when you were writing and work suddenly you were thrust into working with a with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra.
1: Oh, look, I, I sort of started everything late, so I was I was in my late twenties. Um, yeah,
0: that's still you know. Uh, I, I I mean I can't speak for you, but. Uh, I don't feel like I was uh, I was fully adult until I was in my late thirties uh, as a male human being. Oh, so.
1: I, I, I'm not fully adult yet. I, well, I, I, yeah, but that's basically because I choose not to be. But yes, yes, I was still I was still somewhat wet behind the ears, let's say.
0: Yeah, it must have been a, a daunting uh, but incredibly thrilling experience.
1: It, and that's the point. It, it was. It, and and the funny thing, just to sort of fit, to, to, to round out that that little tale, is that at the end of the day of the recording session, that the engineer sort of said, "I can I can uh, just do a, a raw." stereo mix of all of this down onto a a DAT tape for you, a digital audio tape, and um, you can go home and have a listen to it. And um, it it was kind of like the whole day went by in a blur because I was focusing so much on everything. And I I went home and I put on the piece of music and I I don't even know which one, the first one I I listened to. And it pretty much had me in tears because it was like I had had not destroyed my career (laughs) by by messing it up. But also... There is something and and this is the the one thing I will say about working with musicians there is something simultaneously humbling and incredible about having 70 geniuses turn your scribblings on a piece of paper into music and and that's what the orchestra did oh, it was yes it was just it was incredible
0: and delivered within time and budget yep amazing yep how you get a good rep speaking of good reps our next composer uh delivered some incredible work and again interesting uh well not surprising that a, that a fellow composer would pick uh, something like this from from Mass Effect the Normandy reborn this is a piece that ends in uh extreme triumph uh in all senses uh yeah tell us a bit more about the Normandy reborn Stefan
1: this stems from and it's funny I had this conversation with my life the other day because i've been trying to work it out i like heroes in fact i i, I have a need in my life for heroes mm. but i realized that not all there. there's some sort of like like you know i watched the most recent spider-man film and it was a fun film but it didn't it didn't speak to me and the the um the captain american civil war didn't speak to me and i started mm. to sort of analyze why and while i like batman and i love the music for batman the hero element of it, of it doesn't quite speak to me. And what it is, I, I realized very, very recently, like literally in the last week, what it is. Right. The heroes that speak to me, and in most cases, this is actually also because of the music. The heroes that speak to me are the ones that basically, uh, and in fact, there is, there is the, the title of one of my favorite pieces of music is An Ideal of Hope. And that's from the Man of Steel soundtrack. Right. Uh, that piece of music, if, if you have not heard that piece of music, look for it on YouTube an ideal of hope is the kind of the main theme from Man of Steel and it is in all ways the 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 perfect kind of piece of music for me and because the music is fantastic but the music is fantastic because of what it talks about and when i talk about an ideal of hope there are several other heroes that really really speak to me and 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 one that definitely you will know and funnily enough the word hope comes into it as well because there's a line out of a particularly significant television special where the question is asked that sound, do you recognize that sound, that wheezing sound? It's, it's, it's a sound that I thought has always brought hope, and that is Bad Wolf speaking to the War Doctor about the sound of the TARDIS. Hmm. And the Doctor is another one of my absolute favorite heroes, and the music that um, uh, is written for Doctor Who. Uh, by Murray Gold, I believe, mm. um, is again amazing. And so – and Wonder Woman is another one. So Superman and uh, Wonder Woman and, and the Doctor are all symbols of hope and they bring around hope. And the music – reflects this because i think what it is for me is that i kind of look at this and go i don't just want somebody who's going to come in and save the day i want somebody who's going to actually help us save ourselves i think and i think all of those three heroes do that now Mm. what is what is where does the normandy come into that two of my other favorite characters tm are inanimate objects the normandy is one of them and the starship enterprise is another one Mm -hmm. And in fact, I've always claimed that the major character, that the the, the lead hero in all, all of Star Trek is actually the Enterprise. It's not any of the humans. Mm. And, and in some ways, the Normandy is much a, a character within Mass Effect. And just like the Enterprise, as the Normandy did right at the beginning of Mass Effect 2, the only reason you ever blow up the main spaceship is so that you can then give it back and make mm. a big deal about giving it back. And yeah. the, that scene of the Normandy Reborn is one of those ones where it's like, yes, the hero has risen and it gives us all this sense of hope. We've now got, we can now step forward. We can now move forward and we can now overcome all of that adversary because the hero will allow us to do that. The hero's not gonna do it for us. The hero allows us to do that. That's what the Normandy does. And the music that is written that accompanies that is just, as you say, it ends in victory and you nailed that. That is exactly what, All of the pieces of music for Superman and Wonder Woman and Doctor Who, um, like the Doctor Who's, uh, the Matt Smith Doctor Who theme is literally, uh, it's a victory theme, Mm. you know, Um, and, and the Normandy Reborn is a victory theme and it brings back a hero and allows us all to have the hope that we will overcome
0: that was from mass effect and uh, we covered mass effect 1 and 2 together when we used to try to do that on the other podcast kane rinse issue 22 uh, as has been pointed out if we did it now we would certainly give each of those games its own 2 hour show but uh, back then we were we were trying something and uh, yeah we soon ran out of time so uh, can so that I, didn't can happen. I
1: make one- can I make one comment on the Please. on the music for Mass Effect overall? Yeah. I I, I I obviously listen to a lot of music. And, and interestingly, 90% of the music I listen to is soundtrack music, uh, divided up amongst films, television, and games. And there's a lot of music that I find evocative, like I was saying before with the heroes. It makes me feel, you know, the, the Homer Simpson 40 foot high and made of solid gold and invincible type stuff. And I love that. Mm. And so – it may it's evocative it's immersive it's wonderful and and often um i listen to a piece of music and and in fact well, several of these pieces of music that we, we're talking about now make me want to go back and play the game the music for mass effect is different the music for mass effect touches me in such a way it reaches inside me in such a way that it doesn't make me want to play the game it makes me want to be in that universe the the the, the um the, the 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 themes because there's a combination of all, sort of orchestral stuff and and sci-fi sort of synth stuff and some of those are just so it's like i can reach out and touch these themes and they 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 just make me want to be there there is something that is so it's some of the most evocative music that i've ever heard and and across the 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 um the mass effect 1 2 and 3 and 2 is probably my favorite uh, the yes, the writing I... by those uh, and it was a couple of composers there um uh, is just it is just amazing, amazing music.
0: Yeah, completely agree. So something we've already talked about, uh, and this is uh, this is a further year on into your career. But this was uh, another case of you going to work with some already established score work. This time from uh, the uh, amazing Alan Silvestri. Uh, so the game is the Polar Express, uh, the Robert Zemeckis uh, sort of CG um well a performance capture movie i guess um and uh so this is a piece so in the game no, I, I wasn't aware of this because you know i was uh, i wouldn't have played the polar express because i would have assumed it was you know for people younger than me i was already yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a kids game it was a kids game very game. much so. um but confusingly they uh i well i say confusingly um robert zemeckis and the same team also made a film Based around a Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey as Scrooge, but so this game, The Polar Express, has Scrooge in it.
1: Okay, so I actually have to uh, correct you there on one
0: thing. Okay, in good. Fact, please do. <laughs>
1: well, we were we were making the game concurrently with the film being made, which meant right. Okay, this I I wrote my music before Alan Silvestri wrote a single note. Ah, okay. And in good. fact, the music I, I won't say who, but um, we were getting temp. Cutscenes and mm. the temp music that they were using was nothing like the music that Alan, Alan right. Sylvester wrote it was very very different so this was very unusual for me I had no influence or inspiration at all so all of this huh. music came out of out of nowhere now I don't think that the I, I, well I'm not sure because to be honest I didn't see the film either I don't know whether the film had Scrooge in it at all but the game we put Scrooge in and Scrooge was this gigantic like pinocchio type puppet in the mm. form of, of a sort of an evil scrooge and as you're making your way through the train he's taking control of the toys and and is trying to stop the the kid from getting through and mm. so what uh so there's there's a, a boss fight as it were with scrooge and it literally is the kids have to um the, the players have to duck down behind some boxes of presents um, when scrooge is like swinging his giant wooden arms on strings around, and then you have to like pick up presents and bonk him in the head with them. So, Mm. you know, it's, it's, it's a very simple, simple sort of mechanic, but the thing that was significant and the reason why I chose this one, I was originally going to give you a piece of music called, um, the, 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 the hero's theme, which is the young Mm. boys theme, because in all honesty, that is probably my favorite piece from that, from that score. Uh But then there was also, there was also Scrooge's theme. And the thing about this particular piece is why I think this one is more I- I- engaging in some ways is that this piece of music being the fight with Scrooge is a combination of the two. You hear Scrooge's bum, 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 and it literally is, I'm the big old evil Scrooge thing, and, and I'm going to beat up on you. And then you get this, and this is the, the, the hero boys theme that comes in. And then right at the end, we get the hero's b- the boy hero's theme come in. And once again, we have the, <laughs> it seems to be the common theme of, of today is you get the hero's theme come in and it's victorious. Mm. And so this is kind of a good one of kind of like the whole good overcoming evil TM sort of thing. And so I yeah. thought this was a, a better thing um, for you to have a listen to, because it gives that little bit of both themes. It's, a, it's, it's sort of a cheaty way of me giving you two, two bits of music in one uh, in some ways. And so uh, this was also uh, recorded with Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Um, right. But yeah, this is this is a, um, a one where I was basically told, "Go write music." I'm like, "What's the original music?" They said it's not been done yet. I it's see. all it's all up to you. So literally, the brief was, "It's Christmas and there's yeah. a boy hero and that sort of stuff." If so so. yeah.
0: Our guest Stefan Schutz, the fight with Scrooge from uh, the the Polar Express the uh, movie tie-in game that was, uh, this was back in the days when, and it does still happen sometimes now, but when movie tie-in games were made concurrently rather than after the fact, (laughs) Um, which always seems to make an enormous amount of sense to me, um, to get them on the shelves at the same time as the film comes out, but that seems to happen less these days and I'm not really sure. Well they had to with this one because
1: it was a Christmas film and a Christmas game so you couldn't
0: really have the the game come out six months later, that wouldn't have worked. So in
1: this particular one, yeah, that was one of those ones where it was there was very much a very hard and fast line in the sand, and we weren't allowed to miss that one.
0: Blue Tongue uh, Studio, who I know best from uh, their De Blob or De Blob uh, mm-hmm. games, I played. Uh, I played both of those, and I enjoyed those very much. Now, you didn't do the soundtrack for those; they're, they're very no, um, different, was, funky stuff.
1: That was that was done by John Guscott, who's actually mm. another Englishman who I think used to live down your way, and who I met once, and then. I was actually leaving to go over to Japan. I spent three years living in Japan after I left right. Blue Tongue, and I hired um, John as my replacement. And then after I left, they got De Blob, and he did an amazing job on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well worth checking. We should feature. If we haven't before, we should feature some music from De Blob because uh, yeah, no good. Good appointment there. Now our heroic theme continues. Uh, absolutely uh, no surprises for guessing that Martin O'Donnell features in this podcast. And why not? Marty uh, made some incredible themes for, uh, for Halo, for the master chief, for John, the Spartan. And um, yeah, again, not really a surprise that a composer would uh, find as much to like about these, uh, these themes as, as us regular uh, punters. Go on, Stefan, tell us about uh, The Last Spartan, why you picked this so, one.
1: So it's interesting. I was I was going to choose a different piece from Halo 2, and then I was just sort of scrolling through the pr- track list, and I went, ooh, 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 Last Spartan, that's the one mm. I want. And again, and it's funny, I honestly didn't mean to do this. Wow, this is you could write a, a um psychoanalysis on this selection <laughs> of music, because The Last Spartan was actually originally used in the teaser trailer for Halo 2. That mm. piece of music was written before the game came out. And in the teaser trailer, they they, they slightly changed the dialogue about what was going on. So in the game, uh, the the Master Chief, you've got to basically give a bomb back to the – there's a bomb that's been put on your ship, and you've got to get to the, the airlock and take the bomb back. But in the teaser trailer, they, they, they removed a bit of the bomb, and mm. it basically starts with um, you know, the Covenant have turned up and they're basically beating the crap out of Earth and Earth defenses and everything like that. And there's all this radio chatter going on. And then Cortana basically says, you know, um, Admiral, pull back. We're sending in reinforce- reinforcements. And whilst this is happening, you've got the, the Master Chief coming up in the elevator. And again, this speaks to me so much the whole idea that the cavalry's going to arrive. I love that concept. I love that, the thing that we see in so many superhero uh, and, and and various other things where the good guys have had the crap beaten out of them, and then the music changes. And it's mm. almost always heralded by the music changing. There will be a change. All of a sudden, the music will brighten up. And there's times when I've been in movies that I've never seen before, and the music's changed. And I like my heart's slept, and I've just gone, okay, that's it. It's payback time. And then the hero picks themselves up, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in this particular one, there's like, you know, Earth, earth having all sorts of horrible things happening. And, and the Admiral actually says, well, excuse me, Cortana, but what on earth are you talking about? What possible reinforcements could you have? And then for the first time in that clip, the Master Chief just sort of says, I'm going to go and pay them a visit. And it basically, you know, he, he he's he's kind of like he's setting the airlock door to blast open, which is going to catapult him out into space. And then just before he hits the 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 button, Cortana says, because he's obviously going to catapult himself towards the enemy spaceship. Like he's going to catapult and when the airlock blasts out, he's going to catapult himself out at the enemy spaceship. So literally he is the entire reinforcements. And Cortana basically just before he hits the button, Cortana says, what if you miss? And the last word he says is, I won't punches the button and and then the music changes again to that we get that sort of sucking out thing to silence and then you get the halo uh gregorian chant choir singing mm. as in silence as he flies out towards the thing so in so many ways this this was uh this th- this scene alone this 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 trailer alone was me basically going halo to is a day one purchase sight unseen mm. and and most of that was based on martin o'donnell marty o'donnell's music
0: course the last spartan from uh, halo 2 marty o'donnell and we covered all of the halo games we haven't done five yet but we've done all the others and halo 2 landed in cana rinse podcast issue 181 so check that out also check out generally cana there's a forum you can also follow us on twitter Uh, And if you want to request tracks for our regular show, you can use the hashtag Sound of Play. Uh, We also have a Facebook page, of course. You can also make requests on there. Uh, And we'll continue to include a few of your selections in our regular show. As I say, please subscribe to Sound Play if you don't already and leave us a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast from. It's really helpful uh, beyond just uh, tickling our egos. It also helps with visibility thanks to Apple's peculiar algorithms. And if you want to support us financially, we really, really appreciate it. We have a Patreon, of course, Patreon.com slash Canem The minimum is a dollar a month. You don't have to let it go on for more than a month if you don't want, but we really do appreciate that regular income. We put a lot of time into making all these podcasts for you and uh, and it's time that uh, we can't be doing other work in basically. So uh, it is incredibly useful and it all goes back into making sound of play and Kane rinse. So uh, before we hear about his last selection, uh, I need to, of course, thank Stefan Schutz for being an amazing guest and uh, telling us all about both his uh, career and also some of the, uh, the pieces that have inspired him along the way. Uh, and do you have uh, any particular places or things or items or, or whatever that you want to tell our listeners about at this juncture?
1: Um, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, this has been wonderful. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a geek, and I suspect we both are. And the, the whole idea of sitting down and talking about something that we both very much love, this is this is not a task. This is not, this is not a trial. This is this is something that you know I would enjoy doing. Uh, and 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 that's the the one thing about. I think our industry. I think in some ways we are very fortunate in that we get to be surrounded by people who are passionate, both in those creating projects and in those who, who play view listen to our projects and so it's really really uh, wonderful to be able to be sort of surrounded by people on both sides that, that like what we do um, and and I, I truly love what i do um, right at the moment um i am actually in the process just at the moment of going through the mastering phase of all of the music for um yonder in mm-hmm. preparation for a soundtrack. So we are planning to launch a soundtrack for Yonder. So if anybody does like any of this particular music, then um, we will be doing that. And as far as the um, the other music that we've played, uh, I've actually made um, pretty much all of the music from my other projects available on my, my website. So if somebody wants to go and have a listen to some more of that, they are more than welcome to, to do that. And that's, they can just access that there and have a listen to the MP3s of Jurassic Park, and of Polar Express, and of this uh, from this last project, which mm. we are going to introduce in a second, which is another orchestral one, but this one was very different.
0: Yeah. Okay. Just before we hear about that, I just also wanted to ask you um, to tell us briefly because you're also a curator of sound and uh, and a foley artist and an advocate of kind of. Taking the medium forward, um, and I, I found an interview of you with you on YouTube talking about um, use of audio in in virtual reality. We've uh, already featured uh, Mike Resnick, who is uh, who's done some composition for for VR, and I was interested to ask you uh, again as a layman so i i can listen to audio and obviously we've we've had uh prologic and then 5.1 and 7.1 dts all that sort of st- all sort of stuff but you seem to be looking at perhaps taking things a bit further in the sense of uh, selling the full immersion of vr to the player through audio so obviously it's a that's a huge subject i appreciate that but in 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 simple terms that the likes of i can understand how how would it be different composing for vr in your view to regular kind of 3d surround sound type scenario
1: well i've i've spent the last 2 years working researching in in what we call spatial audio for virtual reality alternate reality 360 video mixed reality and, um, I've actually just in the last couple of weeks submitted a book that I was commissioned to write. So th- I've actually written a book all about audio for all of these new realities. Um, and, and the, re- the research was, was, was key to that. And, and I, I made a discovery that I think is really quite significant and I'm not going to claim that I'm the first person to make this discovery, but I want to sort of suggest something to you that, that you know, I, I'm, I'm I sincerely believe this might be the case. So if we look at the whole, if we go back and we look at the whole idea of, of, um the very first photography you know st- mm. still still images with photographic cameras which mm. over time Im- evolved from black and white you know well brown and white as it were back then or sepia yeah. to black and white grayscale, then to color etc then we managed to uh animate that with moving pictures so you know doing a, a you know lots and lots of frames we could basically get um we could get cinema then we basically evolved that uh, over the years to incredible things of huge cinemas and imax and all this of stuff and, and along the way we were able to broadcast that in the form of television then we were able to take those pictures and and put them into a format where we could actually interact with them and those are games interactive games either on your mobile or your playstation or computer etc now we've got the what what the the term i use is the new realities Mm -hmm. and i sincerely believe that if everything i've described to you beforehand was a train and we start in Oxford and we've made our way track by, you know, station by station by station. We're heading towards London with all of those technological advances. VR, AR, MR, all of these new realities are not the next station on this train line. At mm-hmm. best, I would suggest they are an entirely new and different train line that are going to take us in a completely different direction. I sincerely believe that what will be created from an entertainment point of view for VR and AR in, in say 10 years time, you and I can't even conceive right now. (laughs) I I think it is going to be so different that we're like, like, literally if I could reach into the future and hand to you something from 10 years time, your, your mind would just go, nah, sorry, I I can't, that, that, nah, I'm just not, not, not even going there. And and I'm not talking Star Trek holodecks or whatever. I'm just talking stuff that literally we can't have a conversation about because I honestly believe that this is going to be, so gobsmackingly different, and so the sound is actually critical to that. Where it's where sound is important in all the other meters, in this particular environment, it really is critical. Because when if I if I picked you up right now and teleported you to the middle of the Sahara, there mm. is so much about that uh, that that you that you're going to know where you're at. Your 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 skin is going to feel different things. Your eyes, your and your ears. Your ears are going to pick up so much about. Uh, we, we detect. Uh, reflections so in your in your bathroom if you clap your hands and you get that that sharp echo Mm. even if you've got your ear your eyes closed and i put you in there and made that sound you know you're in a small room probably with tiles or glass or whatever because your brain tells you a lot from what you can hear and so if we're putting somebody in vr and we're saying to you we've now teleported you from this large open gymnasium into this elevator well if the sound is not matching up what's going there you won't believe it so that the whole reality of the virtual reality or alternate reality is really really reliant on your brain actually saying to you yep yep i believe that this is this is real and yeah. the audio is utterly critical for that now from a musical point of view oh wow the sorts of things we can do and um very very quickly i'm, I'm playing around with something at the moment where i'm i'm basically putting the the audience member when you put on the headphones you will actually be in the middle of an orchestra so you will have violins Mm. and cellos sort of fanned around in front of you and brass instruments around behind you and and woodwinds sort of closer than the brass and stuff and as you turn your head you will Mm. be uh, almost uh, in the same position that i've been in when i've played in orchestras in the past and i can tell you it's a very very different experience and Mm. one that i think will be quite interesting for people
0: that sounds all very interesting indeed uh, it sounds like valuable work as well that uh, the sort of stuff that um that those of us who just uh, buy and play the games might not uh, might not appreciate all the 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 effort that goes into it but ultimately will feel the benefits in in 10 10 12 years time or whatever yeah. um and from the world of a decade into the future or more uh back to the more uh, yeah, prosaic, but yet somehow wacky world of, of uh, 2005 when uh, when Blue Tongue, uh, when you were part of that studio, were working on a game based on Nickelodeon's cartoons or Nicktoons. Uh, and I, I found out that this game Nicktoons Unite was released over here in Europe under the name of SpongeBob SquarePants and Friends Unite, mm, uh, which yeah. which makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, so this uh, piece that we're going to close this sound of play with is called Goddard's Inside. So tell us about this. So Nicktoons
1: Unite had characters from SpongeBob SquarePants, Jimmy Neutron, Danny Phantom, and fairly odd parents. And so you basically – and it was, it was actually kind of cool, funnily enough, yeah. as a, a kid's game. You could play a, a lot of those characters, the main characters, and it was it was on GameCube, and you could play four-player cooperative. So it was really cool. You could run around with one of you uh, being SpongeBob basically blowing bubbles at people and, and Jimmy Neutron with a funny little ray gun sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera. But the different levels took you through the different worlds. And one of them, you were inside, you were all shrunk down and you were inside Goddard. Now, Goddard is Jimmy Neutron's robot dog. So you're inside this giant robot dog. And I'm sure there's an episode of Doctor Who that does something very similar to this. <laughs> well, um, most certainly. But so so what I got to do with this was I had a, I had a ball with this because it was – Super quirky. Um, Jimmy Neutron is kind of, for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's that kind of spoofy 1950s schlocky sci fi sort of thing. So I basically got to write with full orchestra and Theremin. And yes. Theremin is that that 1950s sort of thing that they use. It's great. And so it's interesting what you were talking about before with the blob and being a different style of music because the Nick Nicktoons Unite, the whole score for this has. Full-on jazz pieces for Danny Phantom, and mm. kind of uh, uh, Caribbean-type things for SpongeBob, and then 1950s sci-fi for the for the Jimmy Neutron. So this, yeah, last piece, stretch. Well, I thought that this would be a really, really nice difference. I wanted to uh, present some different pieces for you for your listeners, and so this one is essentially a nice, light, fun 1950s kind of theremin
0: involved piece of sci-fi pulp music or <laughs> the well, brilliant show closer uh, so yeah thanks again stefan it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and we'll leave you with goddard's insides by our guest stefan and uh ryan will be your host in the next sound of play until then enjoy